Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. They came right in. They said, we've come after the body. And they took him. There wasn't even a chance for, I think, anybody to think about it. And the body was gone before they really realized that the body was gone. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. We know the law is part of our lives, whether we want it to be or not. It's also part of our deaths. Wills and trusts, dividing property and money, sometimes with very specific instructions about who gets what and why, can change people's lives for decades. It's like hands reaching up from the grave. But what happens with our bodies after we die, whether we're cremated or buried in a casket, even where we're buried, is decided by the people left behind. And when the living don't agree, it can get complicated. Reporter Rachel Proctor-May gets behind the scenes of a particularly tenacious dispute about what to do with the body of the legendary Native American athlete, Jim Thorpe. Gosh, that, I, it was kind of like a shocking day for me because I was about maybe 16 or 17 years old. And uh, we had gone to the funeral held at the Ed Mack Farm at the time. It was a, a Sack and Fox ceremonial, traditional ceremonial. It's been over 60 years, but Henrietta Massey still remembers the day of Jim Thorpe's funeral. Well, his first funeral. Henrietta is a tribal elder with the Sac and Fox Nation of Oklahoma. That's Jim's tribe. She remembers going to a special building made of scaffolding with a big fireplace in the middle. Jim's coffin was there, too. The family served a feast meal, and an old man began addressing the tribe's spirits. But then, right in the middle of everything, a hearse backed up to the building, and out stepped a couple guys in suits. As I recall, these gentlemen came in and said that the wife wanted the body taken, I guess, back to Shawnee. So they took it. They got the body and took it out of that house in and put it in the hearse and took off. So that's strange, right? But what Jim's wife did with the body, that's even stranger. She signed a contract with a pair of towns in Pennsylvania, towns Jim had never even been to saying that if they consolidated under the name Jim Thorpe, and if they built a really nice memorial, they could have her husband's body. Can a wife really show up at a man's funeral, take his body away from his friends and his family, and just do whatever she wants with it? And if she does, is there anything the rest of the family can do about it? Now, usually, this is a simple question of state probate law. But Jim was Native American, and he was also famous. And that means the answer is not so simple. Jim Thorpe, All-American, the man of bronze who became the greatest athlete of all time. An Oklahoma Indian lad whose untamed spirit gave wings to his feet and carried him to immortality here in a mighty jungle. Jim Thorpe was the undisputed superstar of the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm. His performances in the decathlon and pentathlon earned him two gold medals, and he was welcomed back with a ticker tape parade down Broadway. People said he was the greatest athlete in the world, 
and that was before he went on to play pro football and pro baseball. But when Jim got too old to play sports, things changed. He moved to California and took bit parts in a bunch of cowboys and Indians flicks. He drifted. He drank. He went broke. Jim married his third wife, a former lounge singer named Patricia, on a trip to Tijuana when Jim was 57. Patricia wanted to make the most of her new husband's fame, so there were some autograph signings and some public appearances. There was a biopic. But nothing paid that much, and so Jim kept drifting. Jim died of coronary sclerosis in 1953. He was only 65. At first, Patricia didn't claim Jim's body. Jim's family had it sent to Oklahoma, where Jim had grown up, for a traditional sack and fox funeral. It's what Jim's son said that Jim had wanted. But then those guys with the hearse showed up, and they left with Jim's body. Here's Henrietta. I have never in my life and never have since then seen anyone come in and be as disrespectful as that was. I guess everybody was contemplating about what's going to happen next, you know, what goes on now. And that's where it ended. It's still, we're still there at that point. What goes on now? Nobody challenged Patricia at the time. State law defines who can make the initial decision of what to do with a person's body, and it's usually the spouse. Now, if someone else wants that right, they can try to get a court order. But in Jim's case, nobody tried. What Patricia wanted was for Jim to have a monument, but Oklahoma wouldn't pay for one. So Patricia started looking around for someone who would. She was in Pennsylvania, meeting with the head of the NFL, when she heard about two fading towns called Mockchunk and East Mockchunk. To get to the Mockchunks, you follow the Lehigh River through eastern Pennsylvania to a steep-walled gorge covered with hickory trees. The coal inside these mountains built fortunes, and coal kings and railroad barons built ornate mansions that still line the streets downtown. But by the 1950s, the coal boom was over, and the town was desperate for something, or someone, to turn things around. So now where are we going? Well, we're going to go over here and we're going to take a look at this uh, life-size bronze statue of Jim Thorpe throwing a discus. I heard the story of how the mock chunks became Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, from a guy named Jack Kometz. Jack is the president of the Jim Thorpe Area Sports Hall of Fame. He's a former high school basketball star wearing nylon shorts and tube socks. We met at Jim's mausoleum, which is off a two-lane highway heading north out of town. What Jack says is you have to start by understanding just how bad things were here in the 1950s. The coal was gone. The railroads were gone, too. Unemployment was so bad that somebody had come up with this plan known as the Nickel a Week Club. Every man, woman, and child would throw a nickel every Saturday in their boxes, canisters, whatever they had, and in five years, they'd have $75,000 to help draw some type of employer here. Jack says that Patricia heard about the plan, and then she just showed up in town one day with this little dog that she had and a proposition. How would the towns like to become the final resting place of her famous husband? There were a few conditions, though. They had to build a suitable monument within three years, and they had to change their name to Jim Thorpe. The towns said yes. So what are we looking at here? Uh, this is Jim Thorpe's tomb here. It's uh, rose-colored 
granite. Jim lies in the middle of a circular driveway surrounded by trees. There are two bronze statues of Jim dashing with a football and Jim hurling the discus. And there's an abstract sculpture meant to evoke Jim's native name, which translates as Bright Path. In the middle sits the mausoleum. It's about the size of a refrigerator, and it's covered with images of Jim. That's the shot put. This is the discus, and this is the hurdles here. And I don't is there any, I think there's stuff around the back too, isn't there? And on the side, he's playing baseball. Here he's, uh, that's the high jump. Memorial. This is where Jim was finally laid to rest in 1957, four years after his first interrupted funeral. Jack was only a kid at the time, but he remembers how excited everyone was. He remembers parading with his Little League team up Route 903. His brother was born that month, and the baby ended up named Jim Thorpe Comets. But 57, yeah, it was, it was a big day. Uh, there was a lot of expectations. Most of them failed. And that's part why the old timers in the community are, are pretty much down on the fact that nothing ever materialized, but there was a lot. We were very close to becoming a national shrine. Now, people tell different stories about what Jim's body was supposed to do for the town. Some say it was supposed to bring tourism or a football hall of fame, or that there would be a memorial foundation that would build a hospital. But whatever it was that the towns were promised or dreamed of, never happened. Decades later, the town did develop a thriving tourism industry, but it's built around whitewater rafting and the scenery, not Jim. So to this day, the people of Jim Thorpe remain divided over their namesake. Some, like Michael Nonemacher, who's a tour guide at the local history museum, say things like this. His widow was a big windbag, it was a big scam. Supposedly, she got $10,000. I don't know if that's true. My personal opinion, send them back and change the name back to Mark Chunk. But no matter how the locals may feel about it, Jim Thorpe is lying exactly where his wife laid him to rest. And under the law, that's usually the end of the road. But Jim Thorpe was Native American. And Native remains, at least sometimes, are covered by a federal law called NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Congress passed the law in 1990 because it decided that Native bodies had been treated like property for way too long. Their graves had been looted. Their skulls had been collected from battlefields. Their bodies were stuck in museums. Sandra Massey is the daughter of Henrietta, the woman I talked to at the beginning who was at Jim's first funeral, and she's also the historic preservation officer of the Sac and Fox Nation. Our people are sitting in boxes and shelves, even now, still today. We're still working on these things, just like I said, being treated like collections, but these are people. What NAGPRA does is it requires museums that have Native remains to have a proceeding to decide whether those remains should be returned to the families or tribes of the deceased. But... The law defines museum as any institution that receives federal funds and that has Native remains. And that means that the town of Jim Thorpe could be considered a museum. So in 2010, one of Jim's sons used NAGPRA to file suit against the town of Jim Thorpe, seeking the return of his father's body to Oklahoma. When that son died in 2011, the Sac and Fox Nation, along with two of Jim's other sons, picked up the suit. Now, this is not a normal NAGPRA case. For one thing, the people of Mock Chunk didn't want Jim as some kind of a native curiosity. They wanted him as an athlete, 
And Jim's not sitting in a box on a shelf somewhere. He was buried by his wife. But she did kind of treat him like property. And the point of NAGPRA is to make sure that deceased Native Americans are treated like people. Jim Thorpe is treated as a relic right now. He is not treated as a human being. And that's what NAGPRA brings into law. Or maybe it doesn't. The way the law is written, it's not meant for this particular situation. That's Jim's grandson, John Thorpe. He opposes the lawsuit. My good buddy, Ernie LaPointe, Sitting Bull's great-grandson, he dealt with NAGPRA because the Smithsonian had some of Sitting Bull's leggings and a lock of his hair. Those are the types of things that NAGPRA was designed to help Native Americans with. So here's John's take. If his grandfather is lying in a museum under NAGPRA, then there are a lot of modern-day Native Americans who are also lying in museums. And, he says, Congress didn't pass NAGPRA to solve family disputes over their graves. That's what John says is really going on here, a family dispute. He says that even if Jim's sons want their father in Oklahoma, Jim had daughters who wanted him to stay in Pennsylvania, especially Jim's daughter, Grace. That's John's aunt. She died two years before the suit was filed, and John says that's no coincidence. If by chance my grandpa had told my Aunt Grace that he wanted to be buried in Oklahoma, my grandfather would be in Oklahoma. He didn't mess with Grace, and the boys knew it, too. All my uncles knew it. That's why they waited for her to go away. They didn't want to mess with Aunt Grace, man. Nobody wants to mess with Aunt Grace. Oh, my gosh. To John, it's just unnative, and that's his term, to dig up and move a body. And that's regardless of what Patricia did to Jim's funeral. Shame on her. Terrible thing to do. But she did it, and it's done, and it's over with, and he's buried in the ground now. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. Jim is at rest. That's an idea that's popular in Pennsylvania, too. Here's what Jack Kometz, the guy from the Sports Hall of Fame, has to say. I got to believe if Jim Thorpe... If he's floating around here, maybe about 15,000 feet above us, I think he has to be pretty, he has, he has a smile on his face looking at this here. It's a pretty nice gravesite. Uh, and I don't think Oklahoma can do anything like we have. The town also has a birthday celebration for Jim every year. They hire a Native American to lead some ceremonies, although he's Apache and not Sack and Fox like Jim was. Some people, non-Natives, say they've seen signs that Jim is at rest. They saw smoke that defied the laws of physics, or they saw a red-tailed hawk circling overhead. But Sandra, the Sack and Fox Historic Preservation Officer, says those stories just show why Jim needs to be with his own people. Yeah, he wants to be here because of some butterfly flying across our face or something like that. To say this kind of stuff just shows me that they know nothing at all about who we are, nor do they care, and they don't care about Jim Thorpe to say that kind of stuff. But Jim is not going anywhere. When his case reached the Third Circuit, the judge held that NAGPRA does not apply to his remains. The judge used a doctrine called absurd results. That means that, read literally, Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania does seem to be a museum. But, the judge held, Congress could not possibly have meant for federal judges to be mediating family disputes. The tribe appealed to the Supreme Court. They say NAGPRA's repatriation proceedings can handle family disputes. But the court didn't take the case, and that means Jim's body is staying in Pennsylvania. Now, I don't know where Jim Thorpe should be buried, but it is kind of amazing that even now, 
when the internet allows us to be everywhere and to last forever, where we're physically buried still matters. For decades, Jim Thorpe was a household name. He was the subject of books and films. He's all over the internet. But the internet's really big, and at some point, to find his achievements, you'd have to know to look for them. In eastern Pennsylvania, though, Jim's name has been chiseled in granite. His face has been immortalized in bronze. He is literally on the map. For generations to come, people are going to be asking, so who was Jim Thorpe? But then again, maybe Jim wouldn't have wanted to be remembered by strangers stopping at a roadside attraction. Maybe he'd just want to be remembered back home. Here he was Jim, and he knew a lot of people. If you talk to people here, they remember how he hunted, how fast he could run, how high he could climb. Um, You know, like I said, I grew up hearing people call him Dad, and it wasn't my dad the famous athlete, it was Dad. So he was a person here, and that's how people remember him here, and that's how he should be remembered. Well, so how do you think your grandfather wanted to be remembered? (laughs) Not like this. For Life of the Law, I'm Rachel Proctor May. What a bunch of goddamn hooey. And I'm telling you, my grandpa's just like, he's shaking his head. You gotta be kidding me. And I'm Nancy Mullane. Like a lot of the law around Native American rights and disputes, NAGPRA is complicated and fascinating. Sarah Harding is an associate professor of law at Chicago-Kent College, and she's an expert on NAGPRA. We got her on the phone and asked the obvious first question, are people property? On the one hand, uh, there's certainly case law out there that has specifically addressed the question of whether people own their own bodies and uh, own their own bodies as a piece of property, such that if something leaves their body, they get to, you know, sort of reclaim it or even reclaim it if it tends to have value down the road. Uh, So there's lots of ways in which this question has been addressed. Um, But the courts tend to sort of shy away from recognizing that your body is property. There's certainly lots of disputes in the courts, but generally they sort of shy away from full-blown idea that your body is property. When it comes to bodies that um, are no longer living, and we're talking about remains, um, there it becomes difficult as well. So if we're talking about dead bodies, human remains, um, the question almost um, inevitably comes up when there's some dispute either between, um, you know, two different parts of a family who have some dispute over what to do with somebody's remains. Um, Or it can often come up when there's a dispute between what, let's say, the coroner wants to do and um, what a family wishes um, to be done with remains. So the, the question of who controls um, those remains in that body tends to come up in uh, those two contexts. So uh, certainly when we look at NAGPRA, it raises a whole other set of questions and inquiries about who has rights to human remains. I think the reason why NAGPRA separates out Native American remains is because traditionally Native American remains didn't have any of the protections that you know, that that non-Native Americans actually were entitled to. So, you know, when when I said a few minutes ago um, that uh, family members have the rights to control what happens to the remains of their loved ones, um, 
or um, have the right to protect a grave site, for example. Those protections traditionally did not apply to Native Americans for two reasons. Number one, often burial sites were not recognized as traditional burial sites, and as a consequence, they were not protected as such. And in addition to that, there is just this, um, this long history of uh, the um, outright um, theft, uh, for lack of a better word, of Native American remains um, as curiosities um, or as um, remains that were of interest for scientific research. Um, so uh, the reason why, in some ways, NAGPRA separates out uh, Native American human remains is precisely to give them some of the protections that um, that have applied to the rest of the population. I would imagine that um, any Native American tribe or lineal descendants uh, of, of somebody um, that is looking to reclaim some uh, human remains are doing so precisely because wherever they wherever they are, whether they're in a museum or in um, some lab someplace or in a mausoleum in the middle of a small town in Pennsylvania, regardless of where they are, the question is, is that in keeping with the wishes of the Native American tribe or the lineal descendants? So um, obviously, as an individual, you know, can you um, control what happens to your remains in the future? Absolutely. Um, and that's going to apply to a Native American as, as, as well as to a non-Native American. Um, but when there's gray areas and there's no clear sense of what somebody wanted or what somebody wished, um, then we fall back on, again, what the next of kin, or in this case, NAGPRA comes in and also says the group itself, the tribe, has a say in what happens. Uh, and that clearly has come about because there has been such historic abuse and disrespect for Native American human remains. Sarah, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Sarah Harding is an associate professor of law at Chicago Kent College of Law. You can find a link to her research on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. This episode of Life of the Law was reported by Rachel Proctor May and edited by Annie Murphy, with sound design by Shawnee Avaram. Kirsten Jesuits Heidel produced our segment with Sarah Harding. Howard Gelman is our engineer. Special thanks to Naomi Mezzi, our advising scholar, for her production assistance, and to Sarah Harding for taking the time to answer all our questions about NAGPRA. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Infinite Guest Network of Podcasts from American Public Media. You can hear all of our episodes, stories about the law and love, surrogacy, cops, Lee Harvey Oswald, and confessions at infiniteguests.org, lifeofthelaw.org, iTunes, Stitcher, or on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to hear our Life of the Law stories on your local public radio station, Give them a call and let them know they can get access to our productions at PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by grants from the Open Society Foundations, the National Science Foundation, the Law and Society Association, and the Proteus Fund. Your valuable donations help us cover the cost of producing our stories, so take a minute or two and visit our website. There's a donate button on the top right corner. You can also sign up to get our newsletter with behind-the-scenes stories by our reporters 
what we're reading and listening to, and upcoming events. On November 3rd, we're bringing Live Law to the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn for a show of live stories about the law and truth or dare. It's going to be great. You can find the tickets on our website. Next week on our sister podcast, Live Law. As a 32-year-old younger Catholic nun, I've been to countless funerals of our aging sisters. However, with this new experience of understanding the process of grieving and death, nothing could have prepared me for the death of a man in Louisiana. That's next week on Live Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos. Let's do this. 